So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with the Modern Man. Yes, we are back for our summer season. Like uh, Little and Large playing Great Yarmouth. We have 10 glorious weeks ahead of us with, I imagine, nothing else in your ears. This will be the only thing. If you go into like Quick Fit to get your tyres serviced and they're playing Steve Wright in the afternoon in the background, you have to be like, no, I'm on man time now. I am very excited about what we have lined up for you. Uh, More basically. More heartbreaking, life-affirming, hilarious, revealing, real-life stories that shed light on our modern world. More of your nothing-off-limits sex questions answered in the foxhole. More of Ollie Peart humiliating himself to complete your challenges in the zeitgeist. And uh, more top tips in the life hack, uh, which you'll never really use, but when you're listening, you'll think, oh yeah, yeah, I'll give that a go. More of that. Um, My middle feature interview this week is with a guy who opened a restaurant and, uh, well, the shit hit the fan. It is a warning from history to any of us home cooks out there who even remotely in the back of our minds think of jacking in our day jobs, gambling our mortgages and attempting to sell food to the general public. His name's Robert. He is, like many of the guests I invite onto this show, just really honest It's not like an interview with an entrepreneur that you'd hear anywhere else. You're going to love it. Um, Before we get going, though, big thanks to all you man fans who have donated to the cause whilst we've been off air. Uh, And by the cause, I mean C-A-U-S-E. I don't mean like the band, the cause. Our brand new recurring beer money donors are Mark, Kendra, Rebecca, Craig, Ken, Monica, and Jeff. Uh, They all signed up to send us the equivalent of one beer per month, uh, which is £3.60. Not loads, but it really helps me pay everybody uh, for their work uh, and helps keep the show on the road. So if you can afford to, do visit modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click Beer Money. Uh, You can also just donate once if you want. And over the past few weeks, we've also had very generous one-off amounts from Susanna, Rachel, Mike, Ben, Jen and Neil. You people, you are all extraordinary benefactors of the arts. You're so beautiful to me. Uh, There you go. That's our record of the week. Right. On today's show, you will learn how street food markets are like high school. You'll learn how to meditate using Spotify. And you'll learn if you have more cushion for the pushing. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. Going from a home kitchen to a commercial kitchen is like going from a bicycle to the space shuttle. Hubris, triple cut chips, and blind panic. How not to open a restaurant. I want you face down, ass up, waiting for me when I get home. 
and Alex Fox cooks up some sex tips for fat people. But first, it's time to talk trends with a man who just told me he has genuinely never tasted blackcurrant and licorice sweets before. Hell on earth. No, forget it. It's like he's never been in Marks and Spencer. It's Ollie Peart. Hi, Ollie. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. What is heading up the zeitgeist this week? Bummer. Tell me more. Well, I'm coming to you today with a uh, with a book review. It's called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Okay, yes. It's by someone called Haron Lanier. Yeah, I have trouble with his pronunciation, but it's Jaron Lanier, I think, okay. is the best pronunciation of it. And he's a computer scientist, and he's been working in Silicon Valley since the 80s, and he's considered one of the founding fathers of virtual reality. He was mm. one of the, he founded a company called VPL Research and they were the first company. <laughs> what? what Visible panty line research. Well, what they did is they had virtual Fuck reality me. goggles and gloves and maybe they used that to research the <laughs> panty line. <laughs> but they were the first. You could sell- believe it, couldn't you? You could believe it started as a dorm room practical joke about Visible Panty Line and became a massive company. He was one of the first people to sell virtual reality goggles. He's considered one of the top 100 most influential people uh, in the world by time. The point is, he's very important. So sure. when he says something, yeah. it's probably worth listening. Okay, to. but what's he saying, basically? Social media is addictive and it's doing bad things to our brain. Yeah, that sums it up, right. Uh, so- I'm, no, I'm only saying that cynically because it is very much in the zeitgeist. It's in the ether, that conversation, isn't it? Wherever you look, there are these Silicon Valley turncoats mm-hmm. saying oh, I used to design the refresh button on Twitter, but now I think it's killing our children. I mean, that is almost like... It's more prolific people saying that than people saying embrace it. He doesn't have anything against social media, but his problem, and he uses this acronym BUMMER, is it's behaviours of users modified and made into empire for rent. It's a very convoluted, weird way of saying it, but essentially what he's saying is that if I want to communicate with you on Facebook, that's fine, or with a crowd on Facebook, that's fine, but it's being manipulated by a third party because the third party are the people that pay to advertise to you using the data that Facebook captured on you. Mm. Why can't we have a situation where, through Facebook or Twitter or Google, we can communicate with one another without that third party influencing what we see? Because the companies were set up as free non-subscription services. And that's what he has a problem with. He sets it out like this. You're losing your free will. It's making you into an arsehole. It's undermining truth. It's making what you say meaningless. It's destroying your capacity for empathy. Why is it making making... what I say meaningless? I sympathise with some of this. Mm -hmm. But if you write meaningful things, then why does it make what you say meaningless? What's the argument there? You have no control over who sees what you put out there, your output. You do do have some control. No, you don't. You do. You can choose whether it goes to friends or whether it goes to friends of friends, whether it goes to the general public. You have no idea what's in your friend's feed. That's the difference. We're all in this like little private bubble. I don't know what your Facebook feed looks like, and you don't know what mine looks like. So I don't know how you're being manipulated or how I'm being manipulated. It could be subtly different, but it could be enough to change our behaviour. And that's his problem. And he also talks about it on a mass statistical level rather than on an individual level. Mm-hmm. So I work for a company where I advertise on Facebook, so I know exactly what... You've got a job. <laughs> God. First he reads a book... <laughs> <laughs> and he's gone and got himself a day job. And it's, re- it's such a weird sort of dark world where I can just look at all this anonymous data, but I can target people and finely tune it to the point where I'm getting real-time feedback on what I'm putting out there, yeah. and I can change it to ultimately change the behaviour. And his argument, and this is why I'm saying it's an argument, because, you know, you have to take these things with a pinch of salt, is that when you're getting feedback as instantaneously as that, it's often the negative things that feed back faster and his point is that it's harder to build trust than to lose it so 
the negative engagement will see results faster. Mm. So ultimately, you're giving the assholes of the internet what they want, and you're getting your engagement with them. Is his point? And all you have to do is look at, you know, for the last five years, the world's gone mad, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I, there is legitimacy to that argument, and it's also a counterpoint to podcasting, of course. Yeah, this might win you over because he has a, a section in the book called Pod People. And he says, a part of the online world that hasn't destroyed its own context, at least while I write in 2018, is podcasting. Mm. He thinks that we are real people, which we are, by the way. I'm not an algorithm talking to you. I'm a human being. And we talk directly to the listener. And they can choose to subscribe or not. And it's sort of a person-to-person relationship. We don't have anybody outside manipulating what we say. And he proves it by coming up with a way that he could destroy podcasting. You could have an artificial intelligence that takes all of the podcasts... And transcribes them, and then you could break it all down. So you could search a podcast based on a politician, opinions about a politician, mm. and then it could feed you like only good things about that politician, depending on what you have looked at previously. Mm-hmm. And another brilliant example is, say you're looking for Trump on Wikipedia, mm. and you were pro-Trump, and Wikipedia just showed you a pro-Trump article about him, mm. or you were anti-Trump, and it showed you an anti-Trump version. That's mm. essentially what's happening on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, personalisation. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's no, you have zero context. You can't look at other people's arguments or points of view, and it just, you know, reinforces what you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or what, no, I agree. It's a problem, but then it's only a problem if you get all your news from Facebook or Twitter, which is, you know, that's where the problem lies, isn't it? Don't do that. Yeah, it doesn't mean delete your accounts. That's what he's, I mean, he's provocatively called his book, Delete Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Yes, but what he but doesn't don't, say... Don't, just look at the BBC as well, it's fine. What he's saying is if you delete it now, just give yourself six months without it, mm. see how you feel, but also it's sort of sending a message to those social media companies that look, you need to change the way that you do things. Okay, and have you been convinced? Would you delete your social media account? Here's what I'd like us to do. We're, we're us. quite Yeah. I would like for us to get rid of our modern man Twitter. Why? Because I think that we are contributing to a, a platform that needs to change its ways. And then we want to, people to subscribe to maybe our newsletter and continue to uh, contribute via our website... We can do without Twitter. We don't need that. Come on, rally around us. Get around us. Come on, rally. The only point of coming off Twitter is if everyone who follows us on Twitter understood why we were doing it. And anyway, I'm not sure I'd really understand why we're doing it. Why would we be doing it? What are we taking a stand against? We don't take advertising on Twitter. We're not paying for advertising on Twitter. We're not harvesting anyone's data. What's the issue? Just, are you going to let us delete the modern man Twitter account? No. Oh, right. Uh, it's time for our challenge. Um, listeners, if you have a challenge for Ollie Pierce, maybe you can ask him to delete all of his social media, see how he likes it. Um, then get in touch via the feedback page uh, on our website, modernmember2ends.co.uk. Uh, we don't have a listener suggestion since this is the first challenge of the series, but mm-hmm. producer Matt and I were having a uh, teleconflagration before the event today. Wait, 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 let me look that up. I don't know, I just made that word up. It sounded about right for like a meeting that's, you know, half in real life and half virtual. Anyway, the point is, um, we discussed that you're heading off to Prague to some VR event. Uh, yeah, it's Europe's largest virtual reality experience in Hamley's store, Prague. Hamley's have got a store in Prague? Yep. That's a fact. Yeah, that's cool, isn't it? I didn't know that. So what we thought would be fun, Ollie, because uh, how have you blacked this trip to this VR thing? Uh, EasyJet. You're right. EasyJet magazine. You're writing for EasyJet magazine. I am, you yeah. didn't just uh, no. I'm jump not just going onto along. a plane <laughs> yeah, <laughs> using yeah. a smuggled identification document. No, no. Uh, right. So yes, you're writing a piece for EasyJet Traveller. Mm-hmm. Whilst you're there, right. Our challenge for you this week is to actually blag us some VR equipment because, frankly, mm. you talk a good game. 
you very rarely bring cutting-edge technology into the modern man studio. So what we want you to do is basically use the power of the podcast, which would include our social media following, by the way, before you fucking delete it, go up to people and say, can I please borrow this highly expensive virtual reality piece of equipment and I want to try it? That's your challenge. What can you blag back from Prague? You want me to steal virtual reality? No, not steal. Actually blag because people think it's a worthwhile endeavour to give it to you to try. (gasps) Do you reckon I can steal it virtually? (laughs) Do you reckon? Okay, fine. Yeah, I can steal some stuff for you. Anything else you want? Car? Yeah, uh, yeah. mortgage. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> no, but seriously, I don't want you to come back with like, oh, this is the latest thing. It's a special glove you wear to play VR golf. I don't want a shit thing. That's I definitely want you... VR wanking, though. I wa- <laughs> Ideally, want you to come back with something by Oculus. Okay. Fine. Okay, yeah, that's your challenge. Okay, all right, all right, all right. All right, and I want your failures documented in detail as per. Okay. Right. See you next week. Hello man fans, my name is Zoe and I'm a yoga expert and these are my tips for meditating at home. One, find a quiet place. Really important. It's quite hard to find those spaces in between your thoughts when you've got a lot going on around you. So settle somewhere quiet and then start to just close your eyes down and breathe. Our mind wants to wander a lot, this is normal, but what we need to do when we're trying to meditate is find a focus away from our buzzing thoughts. Music is a really nice way of focusing your mind out of it, but really chilled, soothing sounds. So either maybe some binaural beats, you can find loads of things on Spotify that have actually got meditation in the title that are just really nice white noise in the background to then bring you into this more chilled state. Tip number two is to not beat yourself up. Sometimes you might not even be aware that you are actually meditating. So when you do something that you love that just takes you away, it could be cooking, could be reading, could be gardening, where you feel like actually you've had some space in between your thoughts, you're actually meditating in that time. So do something that you love and do something that really does take you away and you will get that space. And tip number three, practice, practice, practice. Meditation is hard and a lot of people shy away from it because it's hard. But think like a piano. You would never sit down at a piano having never played one before expecting to bash out a Mozart concerto. So take 10 minutes every day to practice getting this space in between your thoughts and it will be a millisecond for the first week. And then the next week it will be a couple of seconds. And you keep building on this and you carve out the time, you'll notice a big difference within a couple of weeks as long as you stick to it just like you would if you played your scales on the piano you can find out more information or even join us for a bit of meditation at the refinery which is in hackney and we have four studios there for your enjoyment and pleasure so please find us online therefinery9.com thanks to zoe for her life hacks sponsored by podcast lounge for windows podcast lounge is the new podcatcher for windows 10 devices It's an app where you can discover, subscribe, and enjoy podcasts. It features all your podcast favourites, including us, a spotlight where special guests recommend their favourites, that may include us, and a top 100 chart, which probably won't include us. Whatever your predilection, Podcast Lounge makes it easy to discover and subscribe to great new shows. What will you get up to in the lounge? Go to Windows 10 Store and download your free trial of Podcast Lounge now. Now. Dining out has become increasingly common in my lifetime. 
Casual pizzerias and mid-market burger chains are seemingly springing up everywhere, and you're never far from either good value fast food or good quality cured meats, craft beers, sharing plates, that sort of thing. Being a foodie is trendy, and so it's natural in that environment to find oneself thinking, I like cooking, I should open a restaurant one day. Well, Robert Maxwell is from Toronto, Canada, but grew up watching British cooks on the telly, idolising the likes of Hugh Fernley Whittingstall and Marco Pierre White, the English gastropub pioneers. And soon, like many of their viewers, he started imitating what he saw on telly in his kitchen at home, and cooking for him became a form of escapism. I've always kind of worked in an office, doing boring analytical work with numbers, I swear to God, I, across three or four different companies I worked at, I always was in a gray-colored cube. And when I'd come home, I would pour myself a glass of wine, I would pull out some carrots and celery and my knife, and I'd start chopping, and I'd instantly feel at ease. I would cook um, a risotto. I'd cook pasta. I started to make my own pasta. I started to buy massive hunks of meat and learned to butcher and it all just sort of was a a rabbit hole of therapy that I went down into to the point that I think it became an obsession. How, I mean, when you say an obsession, I mean, how long did you spend preparing a particular dish? Oh, it got pretty bad. I'd come home, I'd get home at 6.30 p.m. on a Wednesday night and decide to make pasta from scratch and pulling out eggs and flour. My wife's yelling at me, the kids are hungry. Uh, It was a sort of mania almost. I wanted to prove that I could do it, and uh, and and I and I got this idea, this notion in my head that in order to get any bragging rights for something you made, you had to make everything from scratch. I couldn't use a bouillon cube. I couldn't use pre-made pasta, and it got a bit ridiculous. And my wife got very tired of it <laughs> because I mean she enjoyed the food, but uh, when we're sitting down to eat at 9 p.m., I know that's fashionable in Spain, perhaps to do, but it's not really something we do here. But the dangerous thing was, I suppose because you got more skilled maybe you started thinking of yourself not as a hobby cook but as a frustrated chef yes it it got to the point where i you know i used to watch the the food network we have here in canada and um i'd watch cooking shows and and they'd make something and i started to become a bit bored with them because they're just going to saute a chicken breast and you know bake a potato. Hmm. I don't need a show to show me how to do that. Now I'm not saying I'm a fantastic cook or anything, but I started to get interested in restaurants because restaurants was I felt like more serious business. They have a sous vide circulator. They understand butchery. They can break down an entire flounder. They can. This is the kind of stuff that started to excite me. And so in that, in in so doing, it was a kind of a dangerous territory I tread into because then I started to get this fanciful idea that maybe I could be one of those guys in the restaurants. And that's very common, isn't it, amongst people who are big home chefs, big home cooks? Oh, yeah. Like I was I was one of many, many of these sort of gourmands with the fancy knives and huge libraries of cookbooks and, you know, buying the fancy gadgets and uh, and and backpacks and and cleavers and Japanese knives as big as samurai swords. And yeah, I got into all that. It was, uh, <laughs> it, it, like I said, I think it became a bit of an obsession. Mm-hmm. 
I would always fantasize about a restaurant. You know, I'd take the, uh, you know, I'd take the subway to work or whatever, and that's what I think about. I plan menus in my head, and I had this ridiculously naive notion that if you had a really great menu, you'd have a really great restaurant. But of course, you need money to open a restaurant and investment, and you know, I, I didn't have any of those things. Uh, but what did happen in Toronto is. We had a uh, food uh, festival, a, a market of sorts, which came about, I think, 2012, for which home cooks could apply to cook in it. So I was one of the first to join this booth, and I cooked for the public for the first time. And oh, was, wow. That, that must be a bit like, uh, you know, auditioning for The X Factor or something, isn't it? Thinking, oh, God, right, it was, yeah. Um, like, <laughs> What's your star dish? What did you choose? It was sort of an approximation of fish and chips. It was a riff on it. I did... Chunky English style, triple cooked chips, sort of as per Heston Blumenthal's oh, recipe. Oh, bloody how, how long did you spend perfecting the triple cooked chip? Because I've known home cooks that have spent years on that. It was tough. I had a little, a little tabletop deep fryer. It, it was an absolute comedy of errors. I had this tiny little tabletop deep fryer one day in the commercial kitchen to prep everything by myself. And they told me I may have to feed up to 400 people. It was, I don't, I can't even believe I would even attempt this now, knowing <laughs> what I know now. A couple of my friends joined sort of at the 11th hour to help me serve and things like that. But I made a scratch tartar sauce, and I'm talking, I'm whisking eggs and oil and an emulsification. I, uh, I pickled things. I, uh, I made these codfish cakes. I made this weird black pudding on toast thing. So very pubby. And when they opened the doors, the people rushed. I had a lineup, got 50, 60 people deep within opening our, our booth. How did it feel having members of the public tasting your food and presumably saying it was delicious? It was great. There were some people blogged about it. Oh, I like this. I like that. A lot of people were really happy with the food. It was a strange and wonderful feeling of... Because I, I think cooking in a lot of ways now is a little bit like high school. It's like a big popularity contest. <laughs> everybody, everybody wants to be loved and everybody wants to be cool. And so when I opened my booth, there was another booth, the cool booth was a guy making tacos and he was making these super cool tacos him and his his buddies had tattoos and <laughs> and they were like they were the cool guys and I was just kind of dorky bespectacled you know father of two girls <laughs> trying to do this thing and and I think that this food market I worked at was the starting of a long road of not just being obsessed with food, but really trying desperately to be cool. <laughs> mm. In some ways, it showed me the kind of busyness, adrenaline rush, kind of fast-paced, exhausting environment that cooking a line can be. But it also, I think, was a mirage because I only did it once and then it was over. Mm. I got to go home, you know, and oh, I didn't make any money, but that's okay. I didn't spend a lot of money either. I just bought the food kind of thing. Maybe I broke even. position I was working at it was it was eliminated in walking away so there's some kind of strange pension rules in Canada I don't really know how they work mm -hmm. that you can only take so much of it and put it into a certain type of account and the rest you're kind of forced to cash it out and then do with it what you wish so I like the wise person would have simply put it against their mortgage or bought some stocks or paid down some debt the unwise person would purchase a restaurant which is exactly what I did how much money did you have? I had about $60,000. That's not enough to buy a restaurant. I was going to say, that seems not enough. to me to be enough to buy a food truck. And based yeah. on the experiences that you had, that would actually be the logical step. We thought about the food truck. The food truck crossed my mind, but I, I don't have a driver's license. I can't even drive the damn thing. <laughs> 
and I never liked the idea of a food truck because I've met people that own food trucks and they're driving around desperate, like these kind of like lost souls and in the road warrior, desperately trying to find a crowd of people to feed, and and you get like noon until one and then it's over and it's like that sounds awful i'd rather have a place that's bricks and mortar so there is a series of sort of lucky or unlucky depending on how you look at it circumstances that allowed for me to acquire a business with very little money down based on somebody i knew who was looking for their own business arrangement they wanted to buy a commercial building that happened to have a storefront in it with a with a kind of cruddy old diner you want to take it over you pay the rent throw me a few bucks down, we'll work out a deal that you finance, the, the all the equipment that came with it, do a little renovating, and uh, you know, get a liquor license, and you should be good to go. So I that, That's a lot of steps. That's a lot of steps. How much had you I, thought about those steps? Did you discuss it with your wife? I mean... Oh, I was Don Quixote. I was just chasing a windmill. I didn't even see the obstacles in my way. I, I can look back with complete clarity now, but at the time, I was I was crazed. I was in a mania. <laughs> the idea of having chef's whites and dropping a plate in front of somebody and then them liking it was so overwhelming. It burned so brightly in me that you could not talk me out of it. And that kind of passion is also contagious. I mean, my wife was reluctant obviously but i i think she i infected her with my passion in a way because you know the kind of work i was doing wasn't exactly upwardly mobile i'm not some sort of go-getter i wasn't i'm not management material at the work <laughs> maybe we thought if i owned the place it'd be a different story okay so talk me through how you got the premises ready for your grand opening and what the idea of the restaurant was Okay, well, I, I love the idea of this sort of upscale pub. It's my English heritage, my obsession with Hugh Fernley Winningstall, Marco Pure White, Heston Blumenthal, all these guys. So I wanted to open a kind of a fancy pub. The restaurant that I acquired was a really dingy, crappy diner that had been open. It was open and serving customers. And this is the one thing that I think sort of was the, the ultimate uh, sense of, you know, lack of foresight is that my thinking was, if you've been open and serving customers yesterday, your restaurant works. It's functional. It's passed all the codes. It's got everything it needs. If I don't like the way it looks, I can put up some paint and wallpaper hmm. and and staple guns, some different fabric onto the chairs. Like this, to me, was stuff I could do. As soon as I got in, though, it just it, it wasn't that. This restaurant had been operating, but it was barely operating. It was disgusting. Uh, the kitchen was so filthy, I couldn't believe it. But, you know, I was so blind with passion. I looked beyond. I'm like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll put on some rubber gloves and grab a sponge and no problem. But restaurant dirt is different than house dirt. I'm telling you, it is like an archaeological dig with strata of grease that goes back years often. <laughs> What ended up happening is is that most of that money that I put aside for operational costs to pay our own bills at home and things like that while we got started ended up going into fixing up broken stuff and replacing things that I thought functioned that didn't or getting rid of things that were just too icky for me to even consider cooking on. The deep fryer had old oil in it. And I don't think they'd ever change it. It was as black as motor oil. It was, I'm not putting food in that. So what ended up happening is it just this kind of like coup de grace to this kitchen I hated. I just had it all hauled away. I'm like, I can't do it. I want new stuff. So I found a way to lease it, which was cheaper. So I leased all the equipment. And going from a home kitchen to a commercial kitchen is like going from 
um, a bicycle to the space shuttle. And <laughs> I honestly was so out of my comfort zone. Thank God for the chef we hired who helped me navigate it. But ah, well, now that's interesting because a lot of people. I mean, I watch a lot of these sort of kitchen nightmare type shows uh, because I find it so fascinating. Um, it's so many people's dream, and the mistake that a lot of people fall into is that they're a home cook. They turn into a professional restaurateur and they try and do all the cooking themselves. But you did hire a chef. I did. I mean, for all the all the stupidity I can freely admit to, the, the, the one that's saving grace is that I hired a chef. And then a lot of this had to do with just the fact that, yeah, sure, I can cook some things. But cooking in a restaurant isn't just about cooking some things that taste good. It's about cooking a hundred things that taste good and look good on the plate and are done the same way every time, every day, forever. That's not easy to do. It's it is actually mind-boggling how difficult it is to do and how little these people are paid is <laughs> is a crime you know of course i paid him the best that i could he was he was our, our asset um but i hired him and it was this very interesting relationship we had between this home cook this dithering overly optimistic ignoramus who loved to blather on about cookbooks and this military like precise logical, commonsensical, gruff, like man with zero social graces. And I, t I would have been a sitcom. It would have been a great TV show if somebody wrote about our encounters in the kitchen. Was he humoring uh, you? Do you think he knew that you were uh, out you of know, your depth? Oh, he did. He did know. But he's also, he didn't humor me. He was brutally honest, uh, like I think a lot of chefs are. They have a sort of economy of words. They don't have time to talk. They're busy. Like, perhaps we can put bone marrow into our burgers to make them richer. And, oh, yeah, if you want to blow the whole budget, you're an idiot. Don't. <laughs> so it, it was, it was a, a great learning experience working with him. Did you manage to get it all together for the opening night? Yeah, so somehow against all the odds, we blew all our money. But when the doors opened, the place looked great. Blew all uh, your money? Oh, yeah. When we opened, I had no money left. No money? I had nothing. I didn't even know how I was going to pay my mortgage. So I was in a really bad, tight spot. It was a stupid place to be. I have no excuse. But I I just assumed, you know what? Money will come in. We'll get through it. I know people that had been through it. So we opened. I had no money in the bank. But blind faith that it would be okay because you had a great restaurant idea. Somehow, yeah. I don't know. I, I You know what happens? After going through the renovation and cooking with the chef and ordering appliances and getting a liquor license and dealing with lawyers. I think it's it's a type of gauntlet that I ran that by the time the doors were open, I was already kind of finished. I was already worn down hmm. and stressed out. And, um, and really, it was almost an afterthought opening the restaurant. I was so tired, beyond tired, and so anxious and kind of regretful. I think I was already starting to feel regretful. I remember my first customer was a local school teacher. She walked in and ordered a glass of wine, and she didn't even know that it was our first night open. She just kind of wandered by, and, oh, I've never seen this place before. Walked in, ordered a glass of wine, and I said, you are our first customer. Her name was Monica. I'll never forget her, my first customer. Um, and a few other people came in, and everybody raved about the food. What was the restaurant called? The restaurant was called The Beach Tree, and mm. uh, it was inspired by the Yew Tree, which was a pub that... For a little while anyways, Marco Pierwhite had interest in, and it was sort of epitomized what I loved about the idea of the, the English countryside and the, the pub up in the, up in the sort of 
country and farmland there, you know, very pastoral and a lot of wood and brass. And Have you ever been le- to an English country pub or is this all from watching it on telly? I've never even been to England. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It is also my heritage. I mean, I have family and relatives that are from there and sure. they have relics of England that they've brought over that seem very exotic to me. And It's just interesting um, what the cult of the English celebrity chef has led to, isn't oh, it? Oh, it has. It Here has. you are I think that's you know, right. on the other side of the world, setting up a tribute to a, not only a, a style of pub you've never been to in a country you've never been to, but a particular pub you've never been to. Right. by That was run by a chef who's never heard of me and never will. <laughs> um, the first month or two was a struggle, and I sort of fell into this very dark despair because it was I, I had to live every day. Every day was a, was, a, was a small survival scenario. Staffing was problematic. I ended up working the floor more than working in the kitchen I, I and and I felt I was working very hard we weren't making any money and the restaurant was not having a lot of customers it was a dark awful place to be and I, and I, and it is not like me I'm usually a pretty chipper person and I may be anxious and a little shy but I'm not some brooding uh, you know king lear on the heath or anything like that I'm uh uh, pretty easy going, but I think when I had wagered so much and you know people lent me money and my friend arranged for this business that you know he depended on the rent. There were so many people depending on me that I I couldn't fail. I think sleepless nights. Oh, oh God, are you kidding me? In fact, I I, I entered this t- terrible cycle where I, I was drinking from the taps of my own restaurant just to keep completely losing it and then I would I would pass out in a drunken stupor after the end of service I'd drink and then um, the alcohol you know so I've since learned alcohol is not just a depressant it's a stimulant and I, I, I'd wake up several hours later in this awful deep panic attack just in the trenches with shells falling on me like it was just nothing I've ever felt before you know alternating between you know, weeping and, and moaning and just, I know it sounds hyperbolic and like it sounds over the top, but I, I think the, I think when, when depression and anxiety, it starts to sort of roll down a hill, it, it picks up speed and it's kind of hard to, uh, to stop. And that's kind of where I was heading. I didn't see a way out. It's, it's kind of, I guess the very definition of despair, is it not? Is where you've lost all hope. And I didn't see a way out of the mess I'd gotten myself into. I couldn't just walk away from the restaurant. My my people that had lent me money, my wife, I'd let them all down. And they'd all be angry with me And when I told them to trust me. So I was in a really bad place for the first few months, for sure. And did the alcohol help? Well, I mean, it, it's, it has an immediate effect, which is beneficial, I suppose, in the fact that it's it slowed down the the sort of hamster wheel in my brain. You know, sometimes I'd sit there and say, yeah, you know what? It's going to be okay. I, I'll get through this. But as soon as the alcohol would wear off, I'd be like, no, I'm not going to get through this. This is a death sentence. Everyone hates me. Uh, self-loathing. Hmm. It is. It's a very strange thing. And I've talked to people, actually, that own restaurants. And some of them have, have shared similar experiences, those early days where you're broke and you don't know if it's going to work and you've wagered it all. And, and the one thing the- you do have near you... Our bottles and bottles of booze, I guess. Well, that's well. Therein lies the problem with most restaurant owners: is that if you have any tendency toward addiction or any weakness uh, for the bottle, 
it's not a good place to be because say I, instead I had opened up a uh, hardwood flooring company and right. it was stressful. I can't drink the wood, you know, <laughs> but in a restaurant, there's a wall covered in liquor and there's taps. Like literally it's like a spigot. I turn a faucet and out comes my medicine. And it was probably from opening day, maybe two or three months of just this awful spiral of drinking and sleepless nights and not knowing I'm paying my bills and you know, money collectors calling me and my wife angry at me and never seeing my kids and, whoa, wow, talk about a lesson learned, right? I would say it's a, it was a line drawn in the sand of the restaurant ownership experience when I sold the house because... It was sort of sad to sell it. We we were really wild in the house. We'd always knew that we'd upgrade. It was a tiny little thing. Um, and at the time, the real estate in Toronto was a relatively reasonable business in which normal people could buy a house and sell a house. It's not like that anymore. So when we sold the house, it suddenly was uh, like a pressure release valve had allowed everything to decompress. Payroll sometimes slipped behind. That was the most self-loathing is when, you, when you're giving them their paychecks late. That was the worst. Mm. But I caught up on all that. Everyone got paid. Here's some raises for your troubles. Let's get some new equipment. How many um, staff did you have at this point? I had, I don't know, maybe half a dozen. Right, half yeah. a dozen. Most of them were part-time servers on the floor. I had the dedicated chef and one cook that worked with him and a sort of dishwashing prep guy. And then me, of course. I was on the floor every single night. Or in the dish pit, washing dishes or cooking or whatever, you know, doing, always doing something. Um, when we sold the house, we were able to pay our bills again. And it also made me realize, too, that money, money was the sort of forefront of my stress. Because once the money problems were resolved, I felt sort of a confidence. And I, Because the other thing, too, is, is I didn't feel confident around the staff. I realized I'm not much of a delegate. I'm not much of a manager. I'm too busy trying to get people to like me than to tell them what to do. <laughs> and I always got the feeling that they were showing up to work and doing me a favor somehow. <laughs> but then you got a good review. Yeah, so after I sold the house and I was able to put the money back in and sort of get the ship righted and, uh, and sailing again, uh, it allowed us to to focus a bit more on certain things. And just by chance, a reviewer for uh, the Toronto Star, which is... It was, anyways, uh, at least recently, the, the widest circulated paper in Canada came in and sampled uh, what we had to offer and then wrote a very rare, perfect rating for us. They've only given out a few of those. I think by luck, we had a couple good nights when she came in. The chef, of course, his food was always amazing. The bartender we had working at the time, her cocktails were just sublime. She told me later that I kind of had a nervous energy that might even have been charming. Um, I don't know. But anyway, rave uh, review. What were the implications review. of that? Immediately we were busy. Immediately we had a lineup outside the door. Immediately the phone was ringing off the hook and it did not stop ringing. I then saw that hope that I was waiting for. I was like, yeah. this is it. We finally arrived. And it's like, we need another restaurant. We're turning away a dozen, two dozen people on a Wednesday night. This is unheard of especially in this neighborhood. And that vindicated the decision at that point to become a restaurateur, to give everything up, to take the money and invest it to create something. Yeah, it all it made everything feel like it had been worth it. And it was 
I was thinking this is one of those great stories, you know, the the unlikely amateur makes it to the top, and and I'd already written my memoir in my head and all this stuff. I go as usual, as per as per my personality, I got way ahead of myself. And of course, it opened up all its own problems. When you're really busy, it's not easy to run a restaurant because now all of a sudden you're strained. You're where it's easy when you have a three quarter full room to get the service right. When you're packed and there's people in a lineup, now it's now it's tricky to get it right, and expectations are super high. And uh, we managed to keep things going pretty well, but I don't think my restaurant was built to last. I wasn't built to last as a restaurant owner. The way staffing in restaurant works is, is uh, you, you can't just cover for people easily. And everybody was burning out. We were all really tired and people were making great tips and there's lots of money, but we needed a break. And I couldn't find anyone to cover for a chef. I couldn't find staff. To, so I just decided, like a lot of restaurateurs do, to close for a little while, like for a week, just to give everybody a, a break, mm-hmm. um, a rest, let all the equipment cool down a bit. And there's a financial risk, but the way I kind of rationalized it was is that the fixed costs will still come out. I'm still paying rent, things like that, but I won't. there'll be a week for which I'm not paying staff. There'll be a week for which, at least I'm not paying hourly staff, salaried staff, They, you know, it's their vacation. And it was a calculated risk I took, but I, I think I needed to take it. I actually got a lot of a lot of flack from complete strangers saying, you shouldn't have closed it. That's what ruined everything. That week you closed. <laughs> did it <laughs> like, ruin you know, everything? I think in a sort of symbolic way it did. And closing for that week immediately stopped the momentum of the buzz that our restaurant stopped. People brought by, oh, they're closed for a week. There's a sign on the door. Oh, okay. And then when we came back, all refreshed and ready to go, we had three customers that night. Swear wow. The heck. Yeah, it was, we went from two to three seatings sometimes to like three customers. And I went into a blind panic. I was like, <laughs> it was not a good thing. I could have just closed it and walked away. But it was a good little thing, and and the staff had had put a lot of work into into it. You know, they were part of a team, and I didn't just want to pull a plug on something that everybody worked so hard for. So this guy was a local, and he was between jobs, and he worked in restaurants and managed them a lot. And it was just sort of a fortuitous event that that he was able to come in. At first, I kind of hired him to help run it because I had to get a day job. I was the money from the sale of the house eventually dried up, and I I got a day job back in my <laughs> back in my gray cube. And uh, he ran it while I was working, and then it was just, it, it, things had fallen behind, and my friend who owned the building, we all came up to this sort of amicable arrangement where he'd sort of take over it. Money didn't really change hands because there was debt and, you know, things like that. And um, Beach Tree is still there, same chef. It's still got my cookbooks on the shelf. It's got all my stuff in there, and I can go in there and eat whenever I want. How does it feel now when you do go over and have dinner? I, I don't like to anymore, actually, to be honest. I For a little while I did, I'd come in, and um, slowly over time going in, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't the owner anymore, and it was just like, oh, there's a new server I've never met, and who are you, and you can't just go behind the bar. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and then it was like a weird feeling because I looked around, I'm like, well, I put that wallpaper up. I built those bar shelves and stained them. I, you know, I, I put everything into this, and... You know, I don't have hard feelings towards the guy who took over. He's great. and um, But it is. It's just, in fact, now when I go in, I actually get really bummed out. It's sort of like the thing that I love the most now 
makes me kind of upset. Sort of like in, in Clockwork Orange where Alex hears Ludwig Van's Ninth Symphony, his favorite music now makes him sick. It's kind of the same thing when I go into the beech tree. The thing that I built um, doesn't really make me happy anymore. So I actually haven't set foot in the place in quite a while, to be honest. Months anyways. Do you still cook at home? There was a time where I thought I'd never cook again. I hated cooking. I hated food. I go grocery shopping with my wife and I just like be miserable cloud hanging over my head I hate all this I wanted to throw in my cookbooks um, but over time I, I started to regain it and I cook at home for my family and my kids and and uh, I quite enjoy it and uh, you know I sort of ruefully think to myself I should have stayed right where I was because that <laughs> I certainly get a lot more joy uh, having a glass of wine and uh, preparing dinner for my family every night than I ever did running that restaurant is that your advice to all home cooks then don't do it Oh, God, don't do it. No, don't. Please don't. You know, and, and that's the thing that's funny is, is that we never hear that story. We always hear Heston Blumenthal's story and Jamie Oliver's story and, you know, Marco Puyoit's story. But we never hear about the dude who cocked it up. We don't hear about that guy. And I think we need to hear more about that guy because there'd be less people like me doing that <laughs> if such stories were out. Because most of them quietly disappear into the night, a fleeting little thing a, a sign goes up and comes down in your neighborhood and you don't think twice about it but behind that is a broken family a guy's lost everything and was had a dream that turned on him and uh you know i think that's a story that was really needed to be told robert maxwell and if you've got a story you'd like to share with our listeners or a suggestion of someone who could make a great guest visit our website modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click feedback Still to come, our record of the week, and Alex Fox is up next after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Time for some sex after an enforced period of celibacy now, by which, of course, I'm referring only to our season break. It's the Foxhole with Alex Fox. We are back, Ollie, and I have a new word for fans of the Foxhole, because I figured that we'd got man fans who are fans of the series Whoa. in general. You want your own collective now, we have not discussed this in advance. I do indeed, and I want it to be Foxhole Moles. Oh, okay. I don't think that's going to catch on, so I'm happy with it. Because they like to dig deep down. They're not afraid of burrowing into the dirty places. I mean, the only way I think you could make it sound sexy is if you pronounce it in a Mexican style. What, like mole? Now, normally at this point, Alex, I would ask you what you've been up to during our season break. But I know because I've been hearing it on Radio 1. Yes, I've been being very non-PC on the BBC, co-presenting my new show, which is called Unexpected Fluids. And I think it's fair to say if you are a fox or moles, you would probably enjoy this show as well. Yeah, it's all about when sex goes wrong. It's primarily a comedy show, but it's designed to normalise the idea that sex is not always the glossy, perfect performance that is often 
often pushed upon us by mainstream media. We got one tale from a girl who said that she and her boyfriend had been role-playing and they liked the idea of him pretending to be a burglar and sort of entering the house secretly and, and catching her unawares and they found that very exciting. Except he took it very, very literally and actually smashed his way in through the window. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had to replace the glass afterwards. We are going to answer one of your sex questions sponsored as ever by our friends at mycondom.com who sell dozens of different types of condoms and lubes and you can buy them in any amount you want from just trying one single condom to give it a whirl to thousands in any different combination and uh, if you're after a particular product but you find that it's not available in the quantity that you want or it's sold out they have a special service where if you drop them an email they will order it in for you that is customer service exactly our question comes from someone who has chosen to remain anonymous which you can and they say Alex I love the foxhole and your advice there are foxholeth you're always very kind-hearted to everyone who writes in <laughs> that's laying the gauntlet down isn't it <laughs> you've got to be nice now uh, do you have some suggestions for sex positions when you and your partner are both overweight I've tried Googling and I didn't get very far because everything I found seems to be condescending or mean-spirited or just tells you to lose weight. Yep, there is a big fat problem when it comes to larger people having sex and the advice given on that because so much of it is really heavy on the blame and really heavy on the shame. It seems to suggest that the best thing to have better sex would be to lose weight and lots of people don't want to do that or they can't do that. People are larger for all sorts of reasons. I spoke to lots of larger people, both who are uh, sex specialists or who work in other realms and one of them was Scotty who is a queer fat theatre creator artist and writer and one of the tips he gave me (laughs) one of the tips he said was that lots of people assume that if they are having a sexual experience with a larger person that involving food will be an attractive thing and he said absolutely (laughs) not it's a misconception in his words that food and sex is great for fatties because it's often quite distracting or it can even be a bit demoralising you know a bit insulting Scotty and a lot of other people said before you start doing the sex look at what you're doing the sex on Uh, the bed itself Mm. is a big thing if you're a bigger person so invest in a decent bed you want something with supports in the middle avoid uh, hollow metal frame beds I suppose the cheap alternative to that is actually the floor. Beware of those carpet burns. Yes. Um, A lot of people suggested the sofa because the density of sofa cushions um, and the arms of the sofa means that it's easier to support the body. Larger bodies sometimes do need more support or a little bit more help getting into certain positions. If you've got something you can lean on, it makes it easier. Um, There were a lot of endorsements for... um, dense foam wedges like the liberator wedge those can be quite expensive there are cheaper versions out there but you want something that's quite hard um, so it'll actually mm-hmm. do the job but once you've found that supportive surface what about positions then well i chatted to another specialist called athena may who actually runs sex coaching sessions for larger people she said reverse cowgirl is really good so as a larger woman herself she likes to get on top and face away from her partner because she said that means that um there's no belly on belly friction if mm-hmm. that's a problem there's mm-hmm. not there's not two tummies rubbing together and yep. chafing uncomfortably I spoke to another guy called Assad. He said it's quite common 
particularly if there are two larger men together, for the chubbier guy to lay on his front as the receiver in a, in a sexual encounter. And he said for the chubby person to be on their belly, face down, is maybe kind of lazy but very comfortable. However, it can feel a bit demeaning, as if lying there is just kind of the only thing that you can do as well, a large person. Both of those positions actually involve the fat person turning away, don't they? From Well, his advice was to spice things up by framing this encounter with a bit of uh, submission and dominance. So he, for example, if he was playing with a larger partner, might say, I want you face down, ass up, waiting for me when I get home. Mm-hmm. So he's turned laying onto the front there into a sexy scenario rather than just the last resort because that's all that the person can manage with their bodies although at this point i want to add that larger bodies can be very flexible um scotty really recommended fat yoga and said it was an absolute game changer uh, there's loads of youtube tutorials on this if you don't have a class nearby but it is utterly possible for a person with a bigger frame to still be bendy and are there any secret skills that obese people have in their sexual arsenal that perhaps are not accessible to thinner people? Well, as Assad put it, there are two ways that you can approach sex as a larger person. You can either work around the fat or you can work with the fat. And he says that the latter is really his favourite. In his words, he says, I'm fat, my partner is fat, we embrace it, we love it. You've heard the expression, more cushion for the pushing? <laughs> well, fat people do bruise. So a, like, having a larger partner is not an invitation to get more aggressive unless you've both spoken about that and it's a consensual thing. On the flip side, actually, being really delicate with a larger person, embracing their folds, their creases, really not being afraid to touch them and kiss them and massage them and making them feel accepted and adored and really really paying attention to their body rather than treating it like something which should be ignored politely is a really could be a beautiful way of progressing with sex also you've talked as well about using different parts of the body to penetrate in the past and actually you know folds of fat if that's your thing if you find it erotic if there's lots of them are are many more places you can play around absolutely slide out the tube of lube grab the massage oil (laughs) and and use your partner as a virtual slip slide machine it's glorious Um, a note when it comes to sex toys if you're a woman with a plump vulva then actually opening up the genital area to insert a sex toy can be quite troublesome it can be a bit of well i was going to say a pain in the ass but a pain in the entire downstairs area and a lot of guys who are larger who try to use things like masturbation sleeves or even prostate massages the toys don't do the job they're intended to do because there's too much abundant bountiful flesh in the way ways to get around that include choosing a sex toy with a longer handle we've spoken about the doxy uh, deep rumbly vibrator in the past that's a really good choice because it packs a lot of power so the vibrations can travel further throughout larger bodies and also the long handle allows for you to reach those bits and sort of angle it towards your dangles wherever you want it to go mm-hmm. if you want to read more there's a really good book by a person called Hannah Blank uh, which is called Big Big Love uh, a sex and relationships guide for people of size and those who love them Alex thank you as ever for the education if you have a question of sex for the foxhole then what do you have to do with it head yourself over to our website which is modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click on feedback and if you intend to have sex with anyone this week fat, thin or otherwise uh, remember to kit up at mycondom.com 
And if you want to get even more please from your keys, then just tippity tap in the code FOXHOLE, F-O-X-H-O-L-E, to get 15% off everything on the site. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's show, but there is just time to anoint a new ambassador. It is Danny Mooney from St. Leonard's on Sea in the south coast of England. He says, Ollie, I really enjoy my weekly dose of The Modern Man. I've been listening to you since episode one. I've been a regular Beer Money subscriber. Can I be considered your artist in residence? Uh, Danny, I don't know if you're worthy of that honour. Why don't you tweet me your artist's impression of Alex, Ollie and myself at The Modern Man on Twitter, uh, whilst our account still exists. In the meantime, however, do consider yourself Manbassador for St. Leonard's on Sea. Congratulations. Uh, Music now, and our theme is by Django Django and is called Skies Over Cairo. But for the hot weather we are currently enjoying in the UK, may I offer you this hot new song to play us out. It is called Violet City. It's by Mansion Air, and it's available to stream now, courtesy of Glassnote Entertainment. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.